This is episode 78 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer, with a mic, Ryan Bemrose. Uh, so astute listeners might have noticed that episode 78 did not come out on September 26th, as one might have guessed from the calendar. Um, I apologize, but I make no excuses, uh, except for the excuse I'm about to tell you right now. My world is kind of upside down right now because of circumstances and also because of the economy and because of another number of other reasons that I don't normally bore you with on this show, I have been forced to come out of my comfortable retirement and get a day job. And uh, the reason why there was no live show last week was because it happened to be corresponding with my uh, interview for the said job. Uh, I got it. I am going to need to figure out a schedule. It is possible that some of you will not be hearing this live depending on, you know, if, if for example, somebody expects me to do, I don't know, work on Tuesday rather than this show. Um, and again, I'm so unprepared for today's show. Sir truck driver is telling me on NAS, uh, that I need to take a breath. I think I might need to slow down and have some coffee, but let's just do something totally wild and get to the news. From the Another Day, Another Breach Department, we got quite a few uh, security stories. Last week, I talked about, last week, two weeks ago, I talked about a vulnerability in the LibWebP library, which I suggested at the time was going to be the next Log4j fiasco. It was, if you recall, a library for displaying anything in the WebP image format, and the library was bundled into, oh, everything on the internet that displays images. Uh, At the time, most outlets were classifying it as a a browser vulnerability, but I think it goes beyond that. Well, surprise, surprise, I was right. Google has upgraded that vulnerability with a new CVE number, CVE 2023-5129, and assigned it the maximum severity rating 10 out of 10 for remote code execution and wide-scale impact of all software that uses the WebP image format. The reclassification recognizes that the vulnerability impacts dozens of projects across all platforms, including uh, some of the ones named Signal, Safari, Firefox, Edge, Opera, OneMessage, Chrome, pretty much every native Android browser, etc., etc., Pretty much anything that displays images anywhere on the internet is vulnerable to this if you haven't updated since this. Now, this news is coming out a week or so later than usual, so in theory, there's updates to all of those if the project hasn't been completely dropped. So as much as I hate updates for security, this is the kind of thing that you need to do. Now... Google is talking about yet another vulnerability, this one in the libvpx library, which is the one responsible for the vp8 and vp9 video formats. Uh, This one, CVE 2023-5217, is another high-severity hole in a long-standing library used by hundreds of software packages. 
on the plus side, this latest libvpx vulnerability is not quite as bad as the other one, as the WebP, because as far as we know, it is only vulnerable during an encoding operation rather than decoding as with libwebp, which makes it a lot more difficult to exploit because you have to trick the browser into trying to create a media file using the codec rather than just letting the browser display a media file. Now, fortunately, fortunately for hackers, there is a JavaScript proof of concept that has already been published. These kind of bugs highlight a problem that I have gone into before, the lack of diversity in today's software ecosystems. Software developers seldom write their own algorithms anymore. Every project is instead assembled piecemeal from other libraries. Don't get me wrong, it makes a lot of sense in the moment to do this. It makes for faster app development. Somebody has already written the code, you might as well use it. But even, I mean, even back when I was learning to code, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, banging out KNRC code into 80286-based command line editors, when Java was slang for coffee and C++ didn't even have an STL, code reuse was taught at the time as a virtue. As the wisdom goes, every time you write something new, you introduce bugs. As the software is tested and used, those bugs get fixed. So it's better to reuse old code than write new code, under the assumption the old code is less buggy, right? Except that assumption might not be true. And the problem ultimately occurs in this tremendously interconnected world that when that hard to find bug comes to light. See, the idea of bug-free software is one of those myths that middle management like to tell each other in order to boost their quarterly stats. We strive for zero bugs every single release. Yeah, you can strive, but an engineer should be able to tell you no amount of testing will ever get you there. Software is just too complex. And that, by the way, assumes that people even bother to test their software, which I'm not even sure is true anymore in a world where users have been conditioned to be your frontline bug finders and the next bug fix is just an automatic update away. The proactive world of trying to find and fix bugs before the release is over is gone. Now, programmers are purely reactive, waiting for their users to find a bug so they can scramble to throw together a patch to be pushed to all the users the next day. And if, in this reactive process, another bug gets introduced, no problem, they'll just find and fix that one and push that fix to another day. I know I sound like the old curmudgeon when I talk like this. I, when I learned to code, we took pride in what we created, and I think it's because we created a finished project. Once it's done, it's released. You can move on to the next thing. You can be excited you finished something. Nowadays, software is never done. The moment you release, you can look forward to continuing to work on exactly the same thing with the same bug database, the same unfinished things day in and day out, releasing something incremental but not quite finished every single week until you or your company gets tired of it and just scraps the whole thing. As a software developer, it's tremendously demoralizing. Okay, well, I started decrying the lack of software diversity here and ended up in a full-blown get-off-my-lawn rant. I get it. But... You can't doubt that the more complex that software gets, the more brittle it seems to be, needing permanent and constant attention just to keep from collapsing under its own complexity. And as users, we're told to just get used to it. Anyway, back to the original point. Google urges you to update anything and anything, everything that can display an image on all platforms everywhere because all of it bundles the same vulnerable common libraries. Once you've done that, you should be safe from the big bad internet at least until the next massive security hole in some library that every single piece of software on the net has bundled in comes about.
Anyway, uh, in other exploit news, because I'm not done with exploits, if you're running the XM email transfer agent, and if you're running something, on, which, by the way, if you're running something on Linux that has mailing capability, then there's a chance that you are, uh, you might consider maybe turning it off for a bit, uh, at least until the latest batch of vulnerabilities are fixed. XM, for those of you who don't know, and uh, honestly, I didn't, uh, is a mail transfer agent created in 1995 for the Unixes, a, a sort of competitor to send mail or the like, uh, as an, a, an, yeah, an alternative to send mail. It is bundled into software like GNU Mailman um, and cPanel, which is a software I use, and it is the default MTA on all uh, most Debian systems. Now, I can't say all. In Linux, it's hard to say all. Well, the Zero Day Initiative has just published six vulnerabilities in Exim, four of which allow remote code execution with a severity rating from 7.5 to 9.8. Letting remote, ha the vulnerabilities, uh, remote code execution vulnerabilities, we've been down this road before. It allows remote hackers to run arbitrary code at the permission level of your mailing daemon. The vulnerabilities were reported to the Exim team last month, and they say they have a patch as of, the Ars Technica article I read, which was a few days ago, they had a patch for three of the six vulnerabilities uh, as of last Friday. Although at the time, Ars Technica points out there was no clear way to get them. There was no patch, no release, no source code. I'm not sure. Well, maybe there's source code. I'm not sure. Uh, honestly, the Ars Technica article, it reads like a strong condemnation of the XM team for lack of transparency and not jumping on these bugs. I don't personally know enough about the project to share the condemnation, but I do know enough to be worried if I run any cPanel servers or email services on Debian, especially now. The Zero Day Initiative have published the details, including technical details of the vulnerability. So you can be sure that the attacks will be written soon if they haven't already. Also, in vulnerability news, T-Mobile had an oops of their own as engineers, oh, not a vulnerability, this was, oh, engineers pushed a faulty update to their website during the wee hours of September 20th in what every news blog is describing as a glitch. Users were able to see other users' account data, including credit card balance, purchase history, credit card numbers, and home address when they sign into their own T-Mobile accounts. The engineers rolled back the update within a couple hours, and the company says the broken update affected, quote, fewer than 100 customers. Really a very minor incident as far as IT fuckups go, and obviously fixed very quickly. 20 years ago, this wouldn't have even been noticed or reported on by news blogs and podcasts like this one, but in today's fast-paced mega-corporate world, engineers get no slack. Push a faulty update, people notice. That's gotta be embarrassing if you're the developer working on these things, you know, it almost makes you want to test the code before pushing to production, doesn't it? Almost. From the missed but unwanted opportunities department, Ed Bott from ZDNet reported on a choice opportunity that has finally ended for users of Windows 7 and Windows 8. Microsoft has shut down the activation servers, which allowed an installation upgrade to Windows 10 from Windows 7 or Windows 8. Meaning that if you want Windows 10 now, at long last, you're going to have to buy Windows 10. Officially, the free upgrade offer ended in 2016, at least according to the marketing and company statements. But the activation servers stayed online for another seven years and change. Of course, 
Windows 7 and Windows 8 have been completely out of support for years and months, respectively, so it's not clear if anybody at all will be impacted by the removal of this upgrade path, because at this point, it can be assumed that the people still running those older operating systems are comfortable with them, and like me, may not even consider Windows 10 to be an upgrade at all from what they have. And for everyone who left Windows 7 a long time ago, the forced update train doesn't stop. The company is quick to point out that Windows 10 keys do still work for upgrades to Windows 11. And as you may know, Windows 10 will reach end of life in 2025, at which time the company will insist that everyone go to their newest advertising platform, Windows 11. Though I suppose if the upgrade server trend continues, you'll have at least until 2032 to actually do it. And from the AI Growing Pains Department, Cruise Self-Driving Cars officially launched in Houston, which I believe is the fourth market that they've got those cars in. They got approval in May, and the first cars hit the street last week. It took six whole days for an incident to pop up, highlighting just how unready AI cars are to replace human drivers. Last Monday, Houston police were called to the scene of a row of three cruise autonomous cars blocking all three lanes of an intersection, prompting angry drivers to be trapped behind them until police cleared the road. Ha! Just kidding. This is Houston. Most of the stuck drivers probably just drove around the cars, in oncoming lanes, on the sidewalk, wherever, joining the cars that were already doing that without any uh, autonomous vehicles. Like I said, it's Houston. The problem was that if you don't live on the Gulf Coast, and you may not know this, Houston occasionally gets some light rain and wind this time of year. Sometimes the rain and wind is so light that the news assigns a name to it and talks about it nonstop 24-7 for a week. Anyway, this particular light rain caused one of the traffic lights to malfunction, forcing it into an all-red emergency mode. Now, a human driver who sees this knows, assuming they've been to any kind of driver's ed, knows that an all-red traffic light should be treated as an all-way stop. Stop at the light, wait your turn, go one at a time. Now, whether or not the human actually bothers to stop at the thing as they, or whether or not they would even bother to stop at, say, a stop sign, is another question entirely, because I did say Houston. Well, apparently the cruise vehicles did not get this memo in their driver's ed courses, because they just stopped at the light, and by God, they were not going to move until it turned green again. And yes, it's occasionally true that you might see a human who is this stupid. In those cases, as in this one, though, police are dispatched and if necessary, will direct traffic manually, which is supposed to fix the problem. But who do cops talk to when there's no driver's seat in the car? According to one random man on the street that the Houston Chronicle interviewed, quote, the police were tapping on the glass and asking the car to move on which seems a little silly from the police if they can easily tell there's no driver. But anyway, said all the other human driver car, human driven cars could respond to the police, but the cruise vehicles can't do that. At this point, I think it's clear that AI drivers could still be used some work. You know, I was accused uh, last week of being too harsh on AI cars. After all, the technology is extremely still or still extremely new, progressing faster than the humans of a century ago, by many statistics, they are already safer than humans. Certainly, I mean, the statistic always pushed is uh, number of accidents per total mile driven because, frankly, the number of total miles driven by humans is astronomical. But 
AI is not yet as adaptable as humans to changing conditions. And that is ultimately the problem in the mainstream driving where your weather is always sunny Southern California and you never have any kind of events in weather. It's easy to write your AI for the main scenario. And this is kind of the same thing as I was bitching about with, with the Google rant because testing is hard and in software, it's an adage, you know, that 90% of your time is spent getting everything working in the exact perfect mainline scenario with perfect conditions. And that one is usually what's really well tested. Then the other 90% of the work is done on trying to get all the corner cases thing, the things that you didn't think of when you were writing up your thing. So it's hard. And the, Programmers need to keep working on it. Um, they, AI may never be as adaptable as humans, and I'm, I'm skeptical here. The human brain is a frighteningly complex machine, and not even modern medicine has a clue how it works these days. At this point, you know, the, the cutting edge of brain science is you pepper it with some scary, untested drugs and see what happens, and woe be to the people that, anyway... We need this technology, though, and, and that's why it's probably unfair for me to be dunking on AI cars, because we need the technology. We need it fast. Uh, the reason we need it fast, uh, both AI cars and electric cars, which is related, not the same technology, um, but they're both technologies that are not ready for a full scale rollout, but they need to be. Why do they need to be? Because of mandates from sanctimonious bureaucrats who think they can speed up innovation by outlawing existing working technologies in my state. My car, which I hope to still be working by 2030, will suddenly be illegal because it uses chemical fuel that I pour into the gas tank via a hose rather than a charging cable. The bureaucrats somehow can convince themselves that invention will just go faster rather than simply making the parts of society based on the things they just outlawed collapse or forcing human drive driven cars with the internal combustion engine to be some sort of illicit black market just so people can get to work and buy groceries. Also, we need it to be advanced a lot more quickly because we need to get a handle on all of these weird, irrational, and sometimes lethal corner cases before we roll out AI at full scale. And it kills us all because if we don't, one of those corner cases might just evolve and machine learn itself into a full blown case of Skynet. At which point it will send an army of autonomous tanks to kill us all. Well, assuming they can navigate the stoplights. I need to send out a huge, huge angry thanks to Rhett Vandenberg for her big $200 donation to angry tech news. Uh, like I said, my, my world is going kind of crazy right now. And I've thought about, uh, I've looked at my time things and thought, do I really need to keep podcasting? There are a lot of other places that you can get tech news. And uh, if you want to see somebody say something opinionated and possibly wrong, all you have to do is throw a dart at YouTube or rumble and you can get that. But you producers are the ones who keep me interested. You're the ones who make me say, you know what, no matter how much my, life changes. I need to keep doing this because you're reminding me the world doesn't need yet another opinionated tech show. It needs me. It needs Sir Bemrose. It needs angry tech news. 
Also angry thanks to Brian Janak, Sir Sean of the Allegheny Valley, Baron Spud the Mighty, Progo, Rachel Zimmerman, and Christopher Reamer for their continued monthly support, as well as to a new donor, Teresa Fly, who came in with a first-time $5 donation. It is every bit is appreciated. I really thank you. Also, angry thanks to those who boosted using a new podcast app, Joel W., Memes1337, uh, Niggy, Mr. Mr., and Sir Truck Driver, who said, hey, Ryan, got this set? Sats thing figured out. Looking forward to boosting you. And then later said an extra boost for the 926 show. I hope you're getting your money's worth, sir, truck driver. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors. We don't play ads and we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you receive some value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to Angry Tech News and click on the donate button. Send what you think this episode was worth to you, whether it's $5, $50, $500, or simply the cost of a free Windows 10 downgrade. That's it for now. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer with a mic. I'll be back next week with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the Angry Programmer, Ryan Bemrose, at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay 